Luke 5, verse 1 to 11. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signalled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you'll catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, Lord, because even though our lives are lived in full view and full knowledge of you, Lord, you are merciful. Lord, you, you know us from beginning to end. You know every detail of our lives. And yet we see here in Jesus saying to Simon, be not afraid. Lord, help us to understand this through this passage this morning so that we might be, we might be confident and, and, um, and sensible to come to you knowing that you have perfect knowledge. And Lord, that we might answer the call you put on our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Fishing. Well, I'm glad Lynn brought that fishing wheel out because it is kind of a trophy to my ineptitude when it comes to fishing. It's a, day, it's a reminder. Has anyone here sort of has the same take on fishing? Has anyone been on a big fishing expedition, um, fished all afternoon, come up empty-handed, big fat nothing? Any? Yeah? Not, I'm not the only one, surely. Yeah, okay. I have my suspicions there. Anyone ever suspected that fishing is one of those dark arts and that without such secret information as the best spots, best specific techniques for specific types of fish, tips on what gear and bait, where to go, where to gather the right sort of green plant mush, yeah, or how to suck up a beach worm and all those things, the time of day, the time of year. Reading how to read a tide chart without all that information, barometric pressure, that you're, you're wasting your time. Never had those sorts of suspicions. Did you know, for instance, that no single condition has a larger effect on the catching of bass than barometric pressure? Were you aware of that? Let's well, see, if you go catching bass and think you're going to just catch them, read the barometer. That when the, the pressure is falling or low, and like just when a big front rolls in from the west, bash fishing can be at its absolute smashing best. They bite hard, they strike at a wide range of baits, they get aggressive, and my secret source tells me that they are so much easier to catch than even I could bag out on bass. Barometric pressure, do you know that? Without good local knowledge, fishing can be 
a bit of a waste of time and far from relaxing. I mean, instead of the alarm going off at 4am, you know, you're climbing out of a warm holiday bed that you've paid good money for, getting all stinky from the bait, losing a heap of diverse and surprisingly expensive tackle, you could just wander down to the fish shop and buy as much fish as you want, already cooked and served with hot chips. Yeah, this is the approach that our cat takes, by the way. No need to catch it, you just turn up. So it's not quite the same as fishing, but the outcome's the same, isn't it? So fishing clueless is a little bit like trying to move sheep without a good sheepdog. You can see the sheep, you can see where they have to go, but the minute you try to push them in that desired direction, the mob will split in the middle and go in opposite directions and perpendicular to where you want them to go. So that's, um, that's, uh, that's what it's a bit like. The, the sheep seem to instinctively know what to do in order to foil, foil your plan and not go where they're meant to. And they seem to be the smart ones with all the knowledge. And at this juncture... Having no sheepdogs, you soon have steam coming out of your ears and you've got a long day in front of you. Unless a couple of good sheepdogs suddenly become available. And as much as you wish, you can't control the situation. You have no power. You need the knowledge, speed and precise placement of the sheepdogs. Otherwise, there's the gate, but there's the sheep. And you've suddenly got two mobs to chase after. So I really... I really feel for Peter in Luke 5 here because I have both, I've been both luckless fisherman and dogless shepherd. So I I sense it. So the passage in Luke 5, it's moving in a familiar scene where we see crowds hearing about Jesus, seeing what he does, gathering around, going to where Jesus is, looking, listening, bringing people for healing, being amazed. Hearing that uh, the actual reason why he came was different to what they expected, that he came claiming the authority of God, getting tetchy about that, wondering if this guy should not instead be um, put, you know, silenced, thrown off a cliff. All these things are familiar. We've seen this happen. We've seen reactions to Jesus, demons knowing who he was and being silenced. And in the lead up to Jesus going to the lake, and this is... um, so this is actually the only time in Luke that Jesus is described as being at a lake. Simon and his, his mates, uh, Simon already knows about, about Jesus because Simon's been to Jesus' house and healed his mother-in-law. So Simon's, he's, he has knowledge of Jesus. He's, he's seen him and actually knows a bit about him. Knows that there's more to Jesus, that, he, that he's, um, he's quite unique and special and that we're going to find out some more here. And it's a wonderful moment because Jesus is actually doing something which is, uh, it's, a, it's one of those rare and fantastic moments in the history of man on this planet where God is speaking to the crowd. And there'd been decades of silence, centuries of silence where God's voice hadn't come into the world. But here in this moment, Jesus is speaking the words of God and the people understand that this is unique and this is this is a really special moment for some reason, and I'm going to understand later if I pay attention, this is really special. And they give Jesus their attention because they recognise his message is unique and his authority is from God. 
Whether or not they like it, that's another thing, but they know it, they recognise it. And he's speaking to some pretty core needs. He's communicating to core needs. He's speaking as, as God speaks. So when Jesus stands there at the, the shore of Lake Gennesaret and teaching the words of God, the crowd gather and they draw close and they swarm around him. So this is no small thing. This is a, this is a really key moment. It's a, a, it's a revelation of God, of himself to mankind so that they might know more about God and, and about his kingdom. It's a revelation moment. Jesus is becoming popular. The people are becoming more and more curious and God is speaking to them. So they're straining to hear what he has to say. There's no PA system, so they're gathering close. And eventually Jesus is faced with a situation where there's not enough room and so he goes looking for somewhere to stand and he helps himself to to Simon's boat. It's a great moment. So some moments like this are exceedingly rare, and I've just said that you know, centuries had passed where God had not, the voice of God was absent and silent in the land. So these are rare moments. These are, these are moments that get the crowd really listening and, and really pique their curiosity. A rare moment like, you know, we, could, we have rare moments in our life and our experience in the world. Rare moments like when at a wedding the groom sees his bride for the very first moment. His, his beloved dressed as a bride. And it's great to be at a wedding and, and look for that moment. And it's great. Same goes for the parents of the bride when they hand their daughter over to married. That's a great moment that comes and goes and it's never, it's gone forever. Some moments are exceedingly rare. And if you're a sports lover in Australia, there are rare moments. In 2013-14, uh, we had a rare moment when we completed a 5-0 whitewash over England in the Ashes. That was a very rare moment that may or may not ever be repeated. And uh, that thought has not been lost on diehard cricket fans. A bit like the moon landing. may never happen again. But this is a rare moment and Jesus is delivering one of these rare moments in history when God's word enters into the realms of the the world of men and, and the crowds press close to hear it, to be there when God would reveal himself. So the location, we've named that, that's Lake Gennesaret, it's otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. It's called Kinnereth in Old Testament times. The region is to the south of uh, Capernaum and it's in the midst of a fertile farming area. So a lot of people there. It's closely settled. It's, it's rich. It's a, also a, a mainstay fishing resource. The lake, um, I looked it up, Lake the Sea of Galilee. Has anyone actually been to the Sea of Galilee? No, no one's seen it. I think it's on the tourist trail these days. You could go there, I guess, if you went to the Holy Land. But uh, to describe it to you, it's about 13 kilometres wide, so you probably wouldn't see one side or the other, and it's about 25 or so kilometres long. So that's roughly what it is. And uh, put into local context, Lake Wyangan, which you can see one side or the other, is about three kilometres wide and about five kilometres long. So it's quite a bit bigger than what we've got down the road there. Probably um, Lake Hume at Albury would be a better comparison. Lake Hume is 20,000-odd hectares in size, surface area. And if you measure from the dam wall up to where the water starts gathering in the bottom of the tributaries, that's about 40 kilometres long. So it's sort of shorter than Lake Hume. 
and it's um, it's a uh, I guess it'd be a popular local spot. So if Jesus wanted to find crowds or be where the people were, or put himself where the people would naturally want to come, Lake Gennesaret is a logical choice. Jesus often taught in outside settings. He taught in synagogues as well. But this is the only time in Luke's Gospel that he's um, preaching from beside a lake. So once the the crowds have swelled and Jesus needs to to move himself, he looks for an opportunity and he chooses one of the fishermen's boats, Simon's boat to be precise, as his pulpit. The boats are parked up. The fishermen are on the bank. They're they're washing their nets. You know, you think... You fish all night, that's the hard work done. They've still got to sort their nets out, clean them, pick all the bits of you know, willow leaves and whatever else is growing on the bank out of the nets, rinse them off, fold them so they can be cast, repair them. Yeah, the, the work's not over when the, the boat is parked. So Jesus obtains permission. She, he, um, in the Bible here it just says he got on to one of the boats. I don't know how much permission he, he took or even needed, but um, he gets himself on that boat. And, uh, and in doing so, he's involving Simon Peter again. He's already healed his mother-in-law. He's been to his house. And now he's choosing his boat. So he's, um, he's involving Simon deliberately. He's stepping onto the, the prow of his boat and asking to be put out a bit so he can preach. So here we have a, the beginning of the, you know, what the, the group of disciples is going to look like, who it's going to be uh, centred around. And we're seeing names that are very familiar to us. We're seeing Simon. We're seeing James and John. So after speaking to the people, Jesus is now, he's moving people around him. He's building a small, you know, they've got the crowds there, they're responding to him, but now Jesus is beginning to focus on a small, intimate group who will become his disciples. So this is a very moment when the disciples start to be chosen and called and appear at his side. It's a, it's a great day in, the, in, in uh, the, the ministry of the Lord Jesus. It's a big deal. So and it's a big deal for them too because um, Jesus is entering into their world. He's, he's an itinerant carpenter. Now he's, he's inviting himself into this personal space in the environment of fishermen. And uh, he's, using a, he's chosen to use a fishing boat as a pulpit. Now a fishing boat's a, a vastly different environment to the inside of a synagogue. Just the language would be different. Yeah, you know, they... I, I don't want to speculate on what sort of language they used, but it, I'm sure it was different to that which was in a, a synagogue. But then again, the crowds aren't a synagogue crowd either. They're a, you know, they've, they've chosen to be a, a, at a lake on a day where the Lord is preaching. It's a little bit like this morning. We came into church. The crowds are all zooming into the lake because they're, they're on a fun run. It's a different crowd. It's a different language. It's a different setting. And yet Jesus is um, he's chosen to be, to put himself right into the midst of it and to use a, an unusual vantage point to, to reach unusual people. And it gets even stranger still now that Jesus has put himself into this atypical environment when he directs Simon after he's been preaching and he's taught the words of God. Then he asks Simon to, to move the boat 
Yeah, well, I'm not. These are boats. You know, they take a bit of moving. Uh, it's not like a little skip where you can just push it out and let it drift where it wants to. It's a it's a big boat. So he directs Simon to move the boat not back into shore so he can hop straight back off again. But he says to put the boat out into deeper water and start over again with the fishing. And this is, uh, Jesus is talking to men who already know that he's a little bit different and he's seen and they've seen him and heard him. But even so, their muscles are aching. Their gowns need washing. They're, they're bleary-eyed. They've been up all night and they've just been washing their nets. Do you think they want to get them out again when they, you know, it's daytime? What's Jesus got? He's got some kind of local knowledge that they don't have. You know, that's, uh, they're really... They'd be puzzling over, what does he know that we don't, have, we don't know? Does Jesus intend to make a spectacle of us by you know, rubbing in the fact that we caught nothing? That we've been labouring away all night without anything to show for it? And what can, a, what can an itinerant preacher slash carpenter, what can he offer or possibly know in, in this situation that can be of any assistance? It's a bit like saying, steer the boat over there because I have an idea. Oh, what are, the, what are the fishermen going to be thinking? You, you have an idea. If it was anybody else making sport with them, perhaps uh, the, their sense of humour would be wearing a bit thin at this point and they would probably decide that enough was enough and they'd let him walk home straight over the edge. Yet Jesus is not here to make fun of Simon or to sport with them or to, you know rub it in and he has no hesitation in directing Simon to steer the vessel back out to deep water and throw the nets over to let the nets down for a catch he means it he's telling them exactly what he wants them to do so here we have the situation it's not lost on any of us we've got a non-fisherman telling the professionals what to do very unusual but their response to Jesus is another clue for us. It's their, their response to Jesus as he demonstrates divine knowledge and authority over people and places and times is a great clue for us to watch because this is part of Jesus' call. It's not, as I was saying, it's not just... Um, it's just not credible that seasoned fishermen on the back of a lean spell are going to tolerate a fool in this situation. So they recognise that he has the authority to make the commandment and for, to expect them to follow it through. So, you know, you can, you can see straight away that if it was a word out of place, there'd be a reaction. And the other day I had a call from I had a similar situation, similar reaction. Uh, one of the one of the operations managers at a fertiliser plant that belongs to the other group of stores that we have in the company I work for, one of the operations managers, so he's in charge of a store. It's a really big one. I think they hold you know, 100,000 tonnes or something huge like that, a lot of truck movements. He's in charge of a big crew. It all sort of revolves around him. And uh, he, he called me and he asked me to deal with a problem he had with a, um, a problematic truck driver. Truck driver had refused to comply with the site safety policy. And if you've ever been into a cotton gin or a factory of any sort, uh, you know, any workplace, Joss would be the same. 
they got safety policies and uh, everyone's expected to comply with them. Anyway, this, this, this truck driver had bluntly refused to comply with the safety policy and he was actually breaching it, uh, willfully breaching the safety policy by wearing thongs at a factory. And they said to him, well, you can't be wearing thongs here. And uh, his response was to say, are you trying something on? So not only was he in breach, but he was being belligerent about it as well. So anyway, you know, you can, you know exactly what the operations manager's got to do. He's, you know, by, by law, he's got to, by uh, getting to wear his, his um, heart, fully enclosed leather shoes and issue him with a warning. So the, and the ripple effect of this, um, this belligerent, silly attitude of the truck driver was far-reaching. It went from the site to the dealership that booked the load and then from the dealership to the transport company that sent the truck. And on Monday morning, tomorrow, I'm quite sure it's going to result in the truck driver feeling the ripple effect himself when he's called in and given a warning. Simon Peter's response here is different, isn't it? It's the opposite. Instead of burring up over it to what Jesus is doing here, unusual behaviour, his reaction is completely the opposite. He calls Jesus master. Now, this is a bit like calling him rabbi. And so this is um, Simon Peter recognising that Jesus is a teacher and he's actually, he's seen him in action before and he knows he's a teacher Jesus has been demonstrating that the fact that he's a teacher by teaching the word of God to the crowd. So first thing he calls him his master. And he says that even though they've tried all night all, and worked hard and they've caught nothing, he says they will do, because a Jew master who says it, we will do it again. The, the fact that Peter's, that Simon is using this title of master to Jesus is significant. And it's significant that Peter, who's the master and commander of the vessel, is using it to one who's telling him what to do with his vessel. It's recognising Jesus' authority. He also speaks as a man of faith, calling Jesus master and rabbi and letting down the nets despite having any real reason to do so. Having a professional view that they already know there's no fish there because they, they swept the bottom of the lake clean with their nets already. They did it last night. He speaks as one taking personal authority for making the decision to respond to Jesus by saying, I will let down the nets. I will do it. But as a disciple in the making, this is Peter. Peter has made the right decision. So he's already aligning himself with Jesus as his master. He's already aligning himself and engaging with Jesus as a disciple will. So we're already starting to see that Jesus' power and his authority is uh, making changes to Peter in the right direction. So Jesus' mission has begun, his mission of calling people to himself, beginning with disciples. So Peter, we know, we read on Peter's good response is met with instant and spectacular success. So many fish, so little room to store them all. The nets are straining, they're about to tear. A second boat gets called in, both filled so full that they begin to sink. What a bonanza. What, a, what an amazing miracle. What a gift miracle. Let's have a look at the finer points of it. Firstly, it's a miracle of knowledge. Jesus knows exactly where the fish are. Secondly, it's a miracle of the will. Jesus exerts his will over the natural realm, causing the fish to swim into the nets and thus be caught. 
and filled. It's a miracle of authority. Jesus has been teaching God's word to the crowd. He draws them in. His his authority is, is unmistakable. Jesus' authority causes Peter to say yes to the command to put down the nets. Jesus' authority over nature is evident in the fact that they catch fish. They catch a, a, it's a catch of fish that they'll be talking about for years. It's a miracle of nature. Jesus controls the waters to give up their fish. And it's a miracle of heaven as no man can do what Jesus has done. It's, it's, um, it's heavenly power at work. God is working through Jesus to guide the fishermen to the right spot. God in all his power is present and expressing himself through Jesus as he calls men to be his disciples. At this moment, Jesus knows the fishermen's profession better than they do themselves. After the, uh, the repercussions of the miracle, the amazed crowds, the getting the load safely aboard ship, the calling out for assistance... What if they had a big winch there to pull those boats in? Might have been useful. Getting another boat to carry the massive catch, two boats beginning to sink, getting both the boats safely into shore, unloading of nets, calling for fishmongers, you'd need everyone that was around there, doling out the catch and counting of coins. Yeah, what to do with all these fish? Peter's reaction is compelling. All this has happened, this amazing situation, but his reaction to it is just astounding. And yet it isn't, because he's already begun to respond. Filled with apprehension at Jesus' complete knowledge of, of the situation, the lake, God's word, Peter knows that um, not only does Jesus see what's going on outside, he sees what's going on inside, and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He's filled with apprehension, because he knows that his life is known to Jesus as well. And that his lonely, sinful past causes him to be anxious and apprehensive. It's a wonderful reaction. So you've got to, you've got to get, it, you know, get it right, see if what it is here. Peter, and we know who Peter is as being you know, the, the leader of this group of fishing partners with a couple of boats, is literally grovelling at Jesus' feet and pleading for him to leave him. Peter is a leader of men. He's a man in charge of men and used to having men submit to him. And here he is submitting to Jesus in a... He's prostrating himself before him like a, like a frightened puppy. So Peter's confession and his, his apprehension, his depart from me, is all centred around his recognition of Jesus' authority over nature and over himself. It's his recognition of his own sin Peter's not able to endure Jesus' proximity here. Jesus' demonstration and revelation of God's authority makes Peter consciousness of his own inadequacy and unworthiness. It's not an individual sin that's that's causing Peter to do this. It's more it's a realisation of his overall character. Peter's character is so different to Jesus, so out of line with Jesus' holiness and his authority from God that he asks him to go I can't stand it so whether or not you know, being, being a fisherman in those days a trade or the profession was considered to be dodgy or you know, like a card shark or something like that Peter can't handle the vast difference between his own life and Jesus' life 
So it's actually a totally honest reaction. He's being completely real. And his, his confession is also centred around the fact that he's recognised that Jesus is Lord. He's called him Master already. Now he calls him Lord. And God is truly at work in this moment, getting Peter to change so much that he falls at Jesus' feet and calls him Lord. Paul, uh, Peter is ascribing Jesus, uh, his actions and what he's just done and the authority with, with, the, with which he preaches as coming from God and therefore he falls at his feet. He probably doesn't fully appreciate all the reason about Jesus. We know they've got plenty to learn yet. Uh, in uh, Luke 8.25 we see the disciples after Jesus has calmed the storm still trying to figure out who is this man and asking that question. So they've got a way to go yet but he knows enough to fall at his feet. The miracle, the catch, and the example of, of grace and in the provision of all these fish starts the disciples on a path of believing and understanding God. And uh, Jesus then takes it one step further and calls them out to follow him. He says to Jesus, don't, he says, Jesus says to Peter, don't be afraid. So he deals with his apprehensions. From now on you will catch men. So as if the miracle of fish wasn't enough, Jesus now tells Peter that he's going to participate in a far greater miracle, the salvation of people through the introduction of the gospel, the introduction and the spread of the gospel. Peter reveals, uh, Jesus reveals to Peter that he has a new and different vocation, no longer a fisherman but now a disciple and a gospel missionary who will seek and save the lost, who will become a fisher of men so what does Jesus do now he calls them to himself they promptly says here they pulled their boats up on shore left everything and followed him so here is the conclusion to an amazing miracle their lives are no longer about fishing and after the night before they might have said oh, I could do with a change of career but after the day when they've just pulled two boatloads in, they're going to want to tell everybody. They've got bragging rights forever. They probably thought, oh, they would, you know, we're going to get some mileage out of this in, the, um, in their quietness of their own hearts. But no, they're not fishermen anymore. Now they're following Jesus. Now they're followers. They've gone from being fishermen to followers because Jesus the King has put a call on their lives. So here before you is a compelling demonstration of the authority of Jesus to speak and act on behalf of God to teach God's word to to work God's miracles and to call men to himself for God's work to transform men from being sinners to servants all through this Jesus is showing us that he is God's king and uh, Peter's reaction is a very clear picture of how one man responds to the presence of the king. So Peter's, uh, he's completely changed. He's got no thought of sending Jesus on his way. Rather, he, he hears him speak God's word and calls him rabbi. He grants him access to his boat. He submits himself to his sovereignty over the fish and, and he submits himself to the sovereignty over his life. It leaves him to follow him as servant and disciple. So it begs some really big questions for us. Jesus didn't just call Peter. He called also 
the rest of the, the disciples. He went about his mission, which was to, to preach the, the word of God to the nations. And today he calls us to himself to be forgiven and to be set free from our sin. He is still the king. He's still King Jesus. The gospel is still the means of salvation. The gospel ministry is still Jesus' ministry today. So it makes us ask, we need to ask ourselves this question. How do we respond to King Jesus? He's the fisher of men who calls us not to be afraid, but to leave everything and follow him. What is your response to King Jesus? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this, uh, this moment in time when you called Peter to yourself, where you did an amazing miracle, where you spoke and taught with the authority of God. Lord, we thank you that you came into our world and you did just this and you called these disciples to yourself. We thank you, Lord, that uh, in your sovereignty that you had them follow you, that they, they willingly gave up their, their lives as fishermen and followed you. Lord, speak to us that we might also see that, it, that uh, the necessity for us to follow you as well. Lord, to leave our lives of pleasing ourselves, of indulging and doing whatever we want in order that we might follow you. Help us to see that you remain sovereign, that you remain the king and that you remain the one who forgives sins and that you remain the one who calls us to, be, to follow you and to join your kingdom. Lord, we thank you that you made this possible, that we might be forgiven. Lord, that we, like Peter, could have our sins dealt with effectively. Help us, Lord, to, to put our faith in what you have provided in the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us that we might follow you and belong to you as Peter did. In Jesus' name. Amen.